Good morning, Celebration Center. It is a beautiful day in Puyallup, isn't it? Hello? Is it a beautiful day? Okay, great. Praise the Lord. Um, Pastor Mike always leaves when I preach. I'm not sure what that means. It either means he trusts me not to uh, steal the church or else he uh, doesn't want to hear me preach. And I hope it's, hope it's the former and not the latter. Uh, we are continuing our Life Hacks series this morning. We're in James chapter 3 today, verses 13 through verse 18. And uh, I think we'll just read those uh, right now if we can, if I can get that up on the screen. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. In 1971, I had just completed uh, three years of, of uh, actually four years of Bible college and Northwest Christian University uh, down in the Eugene, Oregon area. I had spent three years in full-time vocational ministry as a youth pastor, and uh, we went home for the summer to Wichita, Kansas to uh, move on to seminary, and I couldn't find the right open door in the right seminary. And so I needed a job. I needed to keep body and soul together, had to work. I had a wife, lovely wife of now 50 years, and, and my little uh, first child, Eileen, was just an infant. So I prepared a resume, and as I prepared it, I realized it oozed with Christianity. And uh, I wasn't sure whether that would be a good thing or a bad thing. There was other stuff in it. There was leadership and academic excellence and sports and and math, and as it turns out, the job that I applied for at Rogers Paint Store at a strip mall in Wichita, Kansas, was looking for somebody that had a math background. In fact, I had to take a pretty significant test because uh, I would be in charge of accounts receivable control and percentages and extending credit and investigating credit and measuring floor covering and wall covering and window treatments and and uh, industrial coatings. Uh, sure. It was actually Sherwin-Williams owned by Acme Paints, which was owned by the Sherwin-Williams company. So anyway, I got, I got the job. I was hired. I was just a few weeks into the job, and I heard that the divisional manager was coming. Now, Sherwin-Williams was, a, uh, was and is a Fortune 500 company. They had, uh, I was in the Gulf Southwestern region, and I was in the Oklahoma City division. And the new division manager from Oklahoma City was on his way up to Wichita to uh, meet us. What I didn't know was that he was coming to see me specifically. Um, he had a reputation, being tough as nails and in your face. And I found out that that is exactly who he was. 
I'm refraining from using his name. Uh, Mr. Boyd, I'll call him, walked in the store, and to my surprise, he said to the branch manager, he said, I'd like to meet Jeff Farmer. He didn't do any other business. I'd like to meet Jeff Farmer. And he walked over to me and grabbed me by the wrist and drug me back into the stock room, shoved me into a corner. Now, this is the first time I've met this man, okay? <laughs> shoved me into a corner, got into my face, sort of like uh, an old sergeant would with a buck private, you know, where they're yelling at him, and says this to me, I don't like preachers. I never would have hired you if I'd have been here. All preachers do is try to share Christ with the customers, and they think they know more than everybody else. But you're here now, and you need to know that your responsibility is to serve our customers and to sell our product and to accomplish the mission of our organization. And then he closed by saying something like this. He says, leave your Christianity at home. You work for me. Do you understand me, Jeff Farmer? Wisdom. James chapter 3, verse 13 to 18. That whole passage concludes by saying, peacemakers that sow peace raise a harvest of righteousness. The whole chapter of James, chapter 3, is actually about taming the tongue. It's an unruly evil. The tongue gets us in a lot of trouble. It's a, it's a small member, but it kindles a great fire. So here I am in this confrontation, or what he wanted to be a confrontation, I'm sure. I have no doubt Mr. Boyd wanted to fire me right on the spot, and he was hoping that I would react differently. And I prayed and I said, Lord, I need to know how to answer this man right now because I can tell you for sure that I would never go to work anywhere where I couldn't share Christ with people and be salt and light every, every day of my life. And the Holy Spirit in that instant of time dropped a word of heavenly wisdom, not human wisdom. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is the clear distinction between human wisdom and heavenly wisdom. The Holy Spirit dropped into my heart this word, and I responded to him and said, I understand you, Mr. Boyd. You will not be disappointed with me. I said nothing to him about Christianity, about Jesus, about sharing Christ. I said, I understand you, because his last words were, do you understand me, Jeff Farmer? I said, I understand you, Mr. Boyd. You will not be disappointed with me. In that moment of time, I knew that the Christ in me, not me, but the Christ in me was going to have the favor of God in that job and that I could excel and lift Christ up. He must increase, I must decrease. And I determined at that point in time that at Sherwin, as long as I was with the Sherwin-Williams Company, it wasn't my heart. I didn't want to be in the secular marketplace working world. My choice would have been to be in ministry, but the right door didn't open and I needed a job. Psalm 46 says that God is a help, a present help in time of trouble. Psalm 121 says that I lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence come my help. 
John chapter 14 says that the Holy Spirit is our helper, and I turn to him for help using heavenly wisdom. And, and so the first thing that happened just almost immediately on the tails of that was the large commercial store in Oklahoma City sold a mammoth apartment complex job of carpet. And the carpet manufacturer gave a free television to the branch, and that's where Mr. Boyd officed, and he decided to take that free television and offer it as a prize, a sales contest for all the, all, everybody in the, uh, in the uh, Oklahoma City division. And I won the contest. Um, one of the main things that we had to do was to maintain control of our accounts receivable. When you sell paint to uh, paint contractors uh, in the Midwest where I lived, many of them were gypsies that traveled, went from farm to farm. They'd put on the paint and take off, and there was no guarantee for their work. Um, a lot of times, paint contractors would rob Peter to pay Paul, and they were poor on their credit. And uh, so one of the main responsibilities I had was to keep the accounts receivable ratio low for past due to current accounts. And that was a huge thing. And my percentage kept dropping, 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 dropping until it was below uh, 2%. Other branches ranged from 5 to 20% past due on their accounts. It wasn't long until they were sending me out to train other assistant managers how to extend credit, investigate credit, um, collect. I had to do some of that too. I could tell you some amazing stories about collecting from paint contractors. Um, eventually, they promoted me to be over all the branches in the, re in the uh, area where I was and sent me out to troubleshoot whenever they had a problem. Um, I share that story with you because as a life hack, wisdom is, in my opinion, elevated to a place that is beyond anything I ever knew before I studied, started studying it. When Pastor Mike told me he was going to be gone and he asked me to speak on it, you understand this is an assigned text. This isn't something I picked to, to preach on. If you're studying and praying and the Lord's leading you in a certain avenue, uh, when you're, you know, on your journey with Christ, then you're very familiar with something and you want to preach on that. But when somebody assigns a text to you, then you just dive into it and say, Holy Spirit, what do you have to say to us about wisdom? And particularly two kinds of wisdom. You know, the wisdom that's from above. Now, first of all, let's just talk about the book of James. And Pastor Mike has mentioned this on occasion, but James was fiercely, fiercely disputed when they were deciding whether or not it would be included in the canon of Scripture. That word canon actually means um, a rod of measurement. It, it, in the very original, it meant cane. The word canon meant a cane. And then it came to mean a, a rod of measurement. And as Christians began to use it, they began to um, consider it as that body of authoritative, inspired, apostolic works that would be uh, included in, in the rule of faith for us. Um, so there were four kinds of writings originally that the first church fathers looked at. First of all, there were universally accepted writings, and all of those got in the canon of Scripture. Down on the other far end of the spectrum, there were what were called forgeries by heretics. None of those got in the canon of Scripture. But in the middle were what were called disputed books. And the disputed books, James was one of the disputed books. 
And there was a pretty big fight at the Council of Carthage in 327 AD, whether or not the church fathers would include James in. And it's because it didn't talk about doctrine. James talks about duty. It doesn't talk about, uh, it doesn't talk about our talk of Christianity. It talks about our walk of Christianity. James is very practical, very ethical at times. Um, and wisdom is just one of several things that appear in it, like taming the tongue and truth-telling and, and the rich oppressors and how to react in trials of faith. You know, there's this whole list of things that James goes over. But when they finally did decide, James was included as authoritative, as apostolic, even though there was not a single theme in the book. It's filled with principles for a Christian's walk and way of life. Now, in the passage we're studying this morning, it's about two kinds of wisdom. Wisdom is only referred to in the book of James twice. In chapter 1, verse 5, and then in the passage we read this morning. It's interesting that it appears in the first chapter in the fifth verse because James elevates it almost immediately by saying, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, and he'll give to all men liberally. So we already know James is thinking this thing is pretty high. But for a long time, I have to tell you in all honesty, it didn't fit for me. The passage I read to you this morning out of James 13 to 18, wisdom didn't fit in it, really. I mean, I know that it's all about wisdom, but in the context of the landscape of James, the whole portrait of the book of James, wisdom just didn't fit and make sense until I really got on my face and started discovering some of the exciting things that the Holy Spirit is saying to us about it. And we're going to look at that this morning. Wisdom, this wisdom that is from above is demonstrated by a good life and deeds done in humility. If you've ever been on a speedboat, you look behind you, or even a cruise boat, you look behind you, and it leaves a wake. And that's the wake that James is talking about here. He's saying, wisdom from above leaves a wake behind it of a good life and deeds done in humility. This wisdom is from above. It is from heaven. And James closes by giving eight descriptors about what that wisdom is like. He says, well, first it's pure, meaning it's, it's holy character. It's not diluted. It's truth-based. It's pure. It's peace-loving. Now, put all these words together. Just think about it's, it's uh, considerate. It's submissive. It's full of mercy. It's good fruit. It's impartial. It's sincere. I mean... None of it is in-your-face kind of stuff. It's all sort of submissive, like it says. It's all sort of full of mercy. and it's, it's, None of it is uh, arrogant or pompous, or none of it is uh, proud or self-absorbing. It's all humility. Some of the translations say meekness. Some of the translations say gentleness. But James also compares and contrasts it with another kind of wisdom, and it sort of shocks us and alarms us. At least it should. He speaks boldly and forthrightly about this wisdom. He gives three descriptors. In the NIV, it says earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. In the NASB, it says earthly, natural, and demonic. And in the KJV, it says earthly, sensual, and demonic. The reason that middle word sensual unspiritual the reason that that middle word changes is because it's the greek word psuche and it means soul-centered it means it's a wisdom that emanates from your soul instead of your spirit 
It comes out of your mind, your emotions, and your wills. It's a, it's a human wisdom. Now, just to be clear so you don't miss this whole point, the Holy Spirit is warning us about a wisdom that is not heavenly. It is earthly. It's still wisdom. Hello? It's still wisdom. It's just that it's not heavenly. It's earthly. It's not spiritual, but it's natural and sensual. And it's not the Holy Spirit. It's devilish and it's demonic. But it's still wisdom. Well, let's get a definition of wisdom. Let's, let's get a definition. In Scripture, the word wisdom is almost always attached somewhere to the word knowledge or the word understanding. So I want you to look at it in terms of a staircase this morning. So knowledge, that's the easiest one to define. Knowledge is just facts and information based on truth. Don't make the mistake of thinking all information is truth or all facts you hear are truth. That's not true. But knowledge, true knowledge, is facts and information based on truth. Built upon that then is understanding, which is the next step in the staircase. Understanding is the process of grasping the meaning of those facts and information and their relationship to one another. Stephen Covey, the, the great management guru, said, seek to understand and then to be understood. Listen a whole lot before you speak. But you have to grasp the meaning of the knowledge of the facts and how they interrelate one to another. And then built on knowledge and built on understanding comes wisdom. Wisdom is even higher principle. It is the right application of knowledge and understanding. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied based on understanding. So let's just give you an, address this in denim and give you an illustration that will date me for sure. Um, I grew up in the... Uh, time when television now I did see color television but I started with black and white television and it was always the cowboys against the Indians forgive me for not saying Native American or First Nations I understand the political correctness of that but you have to understand in the in the early 50s when I was a young boy watching television it was black and white TV and it was always the cowboys against the Indians and I can even tell you who the Cowboys were, and three-fourths of this audience this morning has no idea. You've never maybe heard their name. Anybody here? Now, if you're 65 or above, you know about Gene Autry, right? You, does anybody here know his horse's name? Somebody got it. Who said champion? All right. Good for you. Well, there was another one that I watched all the time, too. Let's get a picture of him up here, see if you recognize him. Who is he? Roy Rogers. Do you know the name of his horse? Now that one, I understand, I don't know if this is true, but I understand they actually sent Trigger to a taxidermist and he's stuffed. Is that true? Okay. I, that's a little weird to me, but that's okay. Um, anyway, then there was, uh, I'm skipping one on purpose, then there's this guy, hi-ho, and who is he? Of course. Now, did you notice anything about all three of these guys? All three of them wore what on their head? Well, somebody said it. Everybody said a cowboy hat, but somebody said it right. A white hat. A white hat. I didn't show you Hopalong Cassidy because he always wore a black hat, and I never could figure that out. Do you know the name of his horse? Ah, I didn't think you would. Yes! Who did that? All right, good. Topper. 
I know that's trivia, and I know it doesn't matter. But anyway, so I grew up watching the good guys against the bad guys, and the cowboys always had a white hat, and, and the bad guys always had a black horse and always had a black hat, right? Now, there were exceptions to that. Sometimes it wasn't cowboys fighting the Indians. Sometimes it was the U.S. Cavalry. When it was the U.S. Cavalry fighting the Indians, there was almost always a, um, in fact, almost inevitably, they would have a young officer, second lieutenant, fresh out of West Point or wherever he trained in officer's training school. He'd never been in an incursion with Indians in his life, knew nothing about fighting. He looked good. You know, he had the gold, what do they call them, capulets or shoulder braids, and he had white gloves, and, you know, he had... He was dressed smartly, you know, and he was filled with knowledge. He had knowledge. And as they would march out to face the Indians, behind them would be a double row of horses. And usually right behind this, this guy was a sergeant. And the sergeant was always scruffy, you know, unshaven with a beard. He was usually a little heavy set. He'd have a bandana around his neck, and he was unkept. But there was a difference between these two guys. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? The difference between knowledge and wisdom. The young officer, fresh out of school, second lieutenant with his sword at his side, had lots of knowledge. He had all the knowledge and all the training he could hope for. But he'd never been in a fight with the Indians, and wherever he led the cavalry, men died. On the other hand, the sergeant had knowledge, OJT, you know, on-the-job training kind of knowledge. But he'd been in a lot of incursions with the Indians, a lot of fights. And when he led them out, soldiers didn't die. People lived. There was actually a difference between life and death, whether or not the knowledge was linked to the understanding and was linked to the wisdom that resulted in life and death. Billy Graham said, we are the most informed people in the history of civilization, and yet we are the most confused. Our heads are crammed with knowledge, but our hearts are empty. Young people graduate with more knowledge or more access to knowledge than ever before, yet they are bewildered, frustrated, confused, and without moral underpinnings or moorings. We do live in an information age, don't we? And yet it is true that the wisdom that is from above is totally lacking in our culture. Daniel in his prophecy in chapter 12, verses 1 to 4, don't turn there, and I'm not going to show it up here because I didn't ask for a slide to be made on it, but chapter 12 is the last chapter of Daniel's prophecy, and he begins it by talking about the end times. And he says, in the end times, there will be time of great trouble, it says in the King James Version, great distress in the NI Version, such as like you've never seen before in the nations. And it says there'll be a call to accountability and some will be called to life and some will be called to death. And it concludes the passage by saying, and people will go to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. People will go to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. So how important is the wisdom of God? How does that apply to our lives? Well, I can tell you I took the time to count the number of times the word wisdom and wise appears in all of the Bible. It's 493 times, nearly 500 times. 119 of those times are just in the book of Proverbs alone. 
I want you to hear one of those Proverbs with me. If we could see Proverbs 3, 13 to 15. Proverbs 3, 13 to 15. Let's get that one first. Do we have it? Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. I'm so tired of seeing William Devane on television advertise gold. I don't know if you know who William Devane is, but he's, in, he's bent on you purchasing gold for your portfolio, uh, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. But wisdom is more profitable than silver, gives you greater return than gold. She's more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare to her. Not some things, not most things, nothing you desire can compare to her. In Proverbs 8, one of the great chapters of the Bible, since I gave you a cowboy quiz, I'm going to give you a Bible chapter quiz too. I like Bible quizzes. What's the great love chapter? 1 Corinthians 13, thank you. What's the great faith chapter? Hebrews 11. What's the great resurrection chapter? A little slower to respond this time. 1 Corinthians 15 is correct. Pro well, you know the shepherd's psalm, Psalm 23, great chapters of the Bible. Proverbs 8 is one of the great chapters of the Bible. In Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified as Christ. You know what personification means, right? Something that's inanimate takes on life. If you, we're not going to read all of Proverbs 8, but if you would read through Proverbs 8, you would see it begin to personify wisdom as God himself and as Christ. Wisdom personified as Christ, and that's verified in Scripture. I think I have a slide. First, I want to give you just one short passage out of Proverbs 8, 34 to 35, if we can do that. Blessed is the man who listens to me, meaning wisdom. See, there's me personifying wisdom. Blessed is the man who listens to wisdom, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Oh, I wish I could have talked about that passage this morning. I, I, could, I could share with you literally how during the 20 years that I was in the marketplace, in the secular working world, how that the three different places I served as president, that I saw this thing fulfilled because I didn't start as president. I started somewhere down the line and saw the favor of God through the wisdom that is from above begin to anoint and begin to appoint to, and, and I want to encourage you, if you work in the marketplace, if you're at home with your children, your family, it doesn't matter where you are, you tap into the wisdom of God from above, it will, it will help you receive promotions. I, I don't know how else to say it. Prosperity and success. I, well, we're going to talk about that in a minute, so, but let's just keep moving. In Colossians 2.3, it says, Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So it actually confirms what Proverbs 8 personifies. Christ, who, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.24b, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, I didn't even, I knew these two next two passages I'm going to share with you, but what I didn't know is that wisdom was first in line with them. 
or if I did, I'd forgotten it. I want you to consider the seven spirits of God out of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And it's a very famous passage. It says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom. And then it goes, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. You know, it goes down it's the seven spirits of God. But the first one is wisdom. I'd never noticed that before. And then I was looking at the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It, it's talking about the Spirit and the operations of the Spirit are distributed to the body of Christ. And then it begins to list the nine gifts of the Spirit. And it starts out with the, the gift of wisdom. And then, you know, the word of wisdom. And then the word of knowledge. And it goes through the word of prophecy and the working of miracles and faith and and speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues. It gives you nine gifts of the Spirit that's distributed to the body of Christ. But it begins with a word of wisdom. How important is wisdom in life experience, really? You, you know, you talk about a life hack. I, I'd never heard of a hack. I, I'm not that techie. I admit I'd never heard of a hack when Pastor Mike started the series. But he keeps saying that the purpose of the hack is to make your life easier, right? Is that what a hack is for? It's to improve. Talk about a life hack to make your life easier. Wisdom is all about good decision making. Wisdom from above is about good decision making. And good decision making makes a difference between all kinds of things. Like health and illness. Like success or failure. Like life or death. Like joy or sorrow like having friends or being lonely. All of those things in Scripture are tied to this life havoc of wisdom. Every day in your life, and I, serving as president of a couple different organizations, you know, you spend most of your day making decisions. You think you want to get work done, and you don't get to get work done because you've got staff waiting in line to bring decisions to you and it either came by email or it came by memorandum or they came in person or you had appointments and decisions 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 you do that at home you do that where you work too your life is made up of not 10 decisions or not 20 decisions your life is made up of tens of millions of decisions and they happen on a daily basis and those decisions when you extrapolate them into the future of your life and your journey make a huge difference in how things turn out now I admit to you some of the decisions we make are not that critical I don't think it makes a difference to God whether you use Colgate or Crest or my big decision, do I want Cheerios or Raisin Bran, you know? Or There's probably two different ways you can drive to work, right? And there's probably not a, a huge thing about that. Um, when I have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, the peanut butter is a given, but I never know for sure about the jelly. It could be strawberry or grape or blackberry. Now, that's a decision that I have to make. But I don't think, that's not the kind of decisions I'm talking about this morning, Okay. I'm talking about decisions like, if there are any students or kids here, am I going to get up this morning and go to school? Am I going to do my homework? Am I going to study for that exam? You think that doesn't extrapolate into a future? Am I going to, for all of us here, am I going to eat right? Am I going to go to the gym? Am I going to live healthy? 
You think that doesn't make a difference? Every five pounds, what did they say, cost you a year of your life? Every extra five pounds. <laughs> I, extra. We're talking extra here. Am I going to meet God today in prayer and in the word or not? You think that doesn't make a huge difference? Am I going to interact with people with respect? Am I going to value people? I'm not, I, am I going to have patience and show love to people? All that, those, that list of pure and peace-loving and submissive and intimate and Am I going to let past failures rule my life or, or past victimization that when I was offended or victimized? Am I going to let that rule my life? Traumas, offenses? Am I going to budget my money well, my spending, my giving? Am I going to discipline that? See, wisdom from above impacts your entire life. Using math language, your life is the product. That word product is a math word. It means multiplication, right? <laughs> yeah. Your, your life is a product of making millions of decisions. And the foundation of those decisions is whether you employ wisdom from above, that is spiritual, heavenly wisdom, or wisdom that is human, earthly, and I can't believe James did it, but he linked to it demonic and devilish. So, there is another famous chapter in the Bible, and it's 1 Corinthians 2. It's a passage that I have memorized. Um, but I want, before we read it, we're going to read the whole 16 verses up here together. But before we read it, because it is also about the difference between human wisdom and, and man's wisdom. But before we read it, this needs to be said. There are wise words and profound sayings and proverbs that come from many different cultures and many different leaders. Often they're called pearls of wisdom. I have a book at home called Pearls of the Sea. It's dated 1905. Uh, it's copyright date. And it's just pearls of wisdom throughout it. Um, Here's what I've discovered about pearls of wisdom or proverbs from other cultures. I've discovered that if they are based on a principle, a foundational principle from the word of God, they work. And so it doesn't matter who says them. Because all the world is a benefactor of God's truth, right? Saved or unsaved, it rains on the just and the unjust. That doesn't matter. All the world is a benefactor of God's truth. So if... So if um, Henry Ford says this. Henry Ford says, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're going to be right. Well, that's, that's based on Philippians 4, where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or if somebody like Helen Keller says, uh, life is a dangerous adventure or it's nothing. She's blind, she's deaf. Everything she did was dangerous. She says, life is a dangerous adventure or it's nothing. That's based on risk-taking, which is the whole message of faith in Scripture. So you could come to a 
Chinese proverb, which is one I have quoted and used many times at the management and leadership level. It says this, the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. And it does, and it's based on biblical truth. So it fits, even though it's from another culture. Here's an African proverb that I've used many times. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others. That's based on Ecclesiastes chapter 4, where it's very clear. It says two are better than one. If one falls down, the other can pick him up. If two are lying in bed together, one can keep the other one warm. If one gets in a fight, the other one can come and help in that confrontation and get them out of it. And he concludes by saying a threefold cord cannot be quickly broken. Two is better than one. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others. The first crisis in human history was not sin. The first crisis in human history was loneliness. God said, it is good, it is good, it is good. Then he made man and he said, it's not good that you be alone. It's not good that you're alone. But having, having said that, I want us to read together 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 16. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did Paul's coming to the church at Corinth, a great metropolis, a, a big center. And he says, when I came to you, I did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power, that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we do speak wisdom among those who mature, but it's not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. Huh, interesting. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages to our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for if they'd have known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. In other words, a divine parentage. God is giving you other faculties, not something you'll see with your natural eyes or not something you'll hear with your natural ears, but he's giving you something in the spirit that you can receive. God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Let me just go back to that one real quickly. What man, here's Al sitting over here. Who knows the things of Al except the Spirit of Al within him? Even so, the things of God no one will know except by the Spirit of God. You think you can understand God without the Spirit? You cannot. You think you can read the Bible without the Spirit? You cannot. The things of God no one can know except by the Spirit of God. Let's keep reading. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, the deep things of God, 
For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Aha! There is a wisdom that man doesn't teach. There is a wisdom that the Holy Spirit teaches that compares spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, hello, Tsukikos, the same Greek word I told you about earlier that talked about being soul-centered. There's the Greek word, the natural man, the soul-centered man. The, that actually means animal-natured man. That the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. I'm going to stop there. That's far enough. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. Don't miss this about the wisdom that we're talking about this morning, the wisdom that is from above. The wisdom that is from above is not natural. It is supernatural. It is beyond nature. It is heavenly. It is not earthly. Its origin is in God and not in the devil or demons who would love to hack your life and mess it up really good. St. Augustine said this, one of the early church fathers, you will be ensnared by the wisdom of the serpent. You will be set free by the foolishness of God. Let me say that in my translation. Can I say it? God's kindergarten is wiser than man's Ph.D. study doctoral program. Now, we don't live that way, and we don't act that way. But if you will begin to get in the flow of that supernatural wisdom with new faculties, not your natural ears, not your natural eyes, not your mind and your thinking, but if you will begin to get in the flow and the rhythm of the spirit of his grace, you will begin to discern things in the heavens that will change your decision making. And that will change the way you live. And it will change the way the world interacts with you. Now, I want to speak just real quickly to you about something that I call entropic Christians, entropic Christians. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 6, 5. Paul says, I speak to your shame. Is there not a wise man among you? The word shame there in the original Greek is the word entropy. Entropy, which means turning inward or inversion. It's only used one other time in scriptures in the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 34, where Paul says again, he says, some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Instead of bringing true spiritual wisdom to decision-making, entropic Christians were turning inward to their own human wisdom and thinking, and this inverted behavior caused confusion and disorder, which it always does, by the way. 
It always causes confusion and disorder. The modern scientific term entropy is actually the same word that we get from the Greek original, a measure of disorder in every given system. Are you familiar with the study of thermodynamics, which is uh, part of a branch of the study of physics? The first law of thermodynamics basically says that you can't create energy or destroy energy, that there's a given amount of energy in the universal system and it's not going to get bigger or less. It's just there. But the second law of thermodynamics teaches us that all systems move toward entropy. They all move toward inversion. They all tend to go toward disorder or dysfunction. That's a very important principle to know if you're leading an organization because that's true of organizations too. They all move toward disorder and dysfunction unless you can bring a new source of energy in from the outside and bring it into the system. If you can bring new energy in, and the spiritual parallel is absolutely striking. It's absolutely striking here. A person turning inward to his or her own, his or her own bank of wisdom will inevitably deteriorate into spiritual confusion and death. But when Christ, who's the wisdom of God, enters from above via the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures, there is transformational life. The key to live out of divine heritage. The key is to live out of your divine heritage. Now, I want to talk about being born again, being saved, trusting Christ. There's a lot of different phrases we use. If you're here this morning, by the way, and you've never accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, this is something you're just going to want to do. Uh, it's so exciting and so wonderful and life transforming. When you repent of your sins and accept Jesus as your Savior and your Father as God. You are what the scriptures called born from where? Above. It says born again in many of the translations, but that means in the original, you are born from above. And you become a redeemed child of God. You become God's offspring. Now that offspring, that is not a term of endearment. That's not a sentimental term. Please understand, when you are born of God, you literally... Not figuratively, you literally become a son or a daughter of the living God. And you all of a sudden have divine parentage instead of human parentage. And you begin to embrace that with greater reality than even your human parents. It's an amazing thing. We are not merely accepted by God, we are begotten by God. And our divine parentage becomes more real, more enduring than our human parentage. We become partakers of God's divine nature. So, the offspring of a bird. The offspring of a bird is the offspring of a bird. It's the daughter of a bird or a son of a bird. The offspring of a bird sings. The offspring of a bird flies. Stay with me here. You can tell we're getting ready to close because the worship team's going up. But if you're the offspring of a rabbit, your nature is different. You don't sing and you don't fly, do you? 
a different nature. See, that's what James is talking about. That's what Paul is talking about in the scripture. One is natural, one is spiritual. It's a different nature. It has a different origin. You can't just accommodate man's wisdom or go to a higher level of schooling. You can't dress up man's wisdom or put makeup on it or you can't elaborate or enhance man's wisdom and ever come out with the end product that you want because the origin, the seed is totally different. The wisdom that is from above is from God. And the Holy Spirit wants to give you a new nature with a whole new set of faculties. This is where we really drill down to what the life hack is about wisdom from above. Please hear my heart. I'm crying out to you as a father in the faith. Hear my heart. The Holy Spirit is the source of wisdom from above. The Holy Spirit is the source of good decision making. The Holy Spirit is the source of health instead of illness, of success instead of failure, of joy instead of sorrow, of friends instead of loneliness of all the things, because they're all biblical principles, and they all begin with wisdom. It wasn't me. It was God himself who chose to begin the list of the seven spirits of God with the spirit of wisdom. It wasn't me, but it was God himself who, be, who chose to list the nine gifts of the spirit, and he began with the word of wisdom, because Christ is the wisdom of God. And I assure you that the foolishness of God is wiser than the PhD doctoral study of man. God has provided in the baptism of the Holy Spirit and in the gifts of the Spirit the anointing and the tools that you need and that are necessary to live and walk in spiritual wisdom. And it will make you a peacemaker that sows peace in confrontational encounters like I had with Mr. Boyd. I know that he left the Sherwin-Williams Company that morning thinking, hmm, I expected a different reaction. Where was that sassy, arrogant, bold-in-your-face Christian testimony? But see, God had a higher order. God had a higher plan. And he always does. He always does. The meekness of wisdom, the gentleness of wisdom, the humility of wisdom. I want to close with Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 18. Be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but wise. Do not be foolish, but understand the Lord's, what the Lord's will is, and be filled with the Spirit. That was one of the passages I was required to memorize as a student in Bible college. And this is the way we learned it in the King James Version. It said, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. They thought that the disciples and the apostles were drunk on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They accused them of being drunk, and Peter had to stand up and say, hey, everybody, these people aren't drunk like you think. This is what was promised by Joel the prophet all the way back in Joel chapter 2. 
when he said he would pour out his spirit on his sons and his daughters, on his young men and his handmaidens, and they would prophesy. And, and the flow of the kingdom, the entire flow of the kingdom of God takes place because you get in the river. So this morning, this life hack is about inviting you into the river. Let's stand together, shall we? You might not know it, but you were called to be a revolutionary. You were called to be transformative where you are. You were called to be the ecclesia of Christ. You're called to be the church, the church of the living God, where you work, in your neighborhood, wherever you go. And God wants to do that in you and through you. So I'm just going to pray a simple prayer this morning. And I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit into our lives. Will you pray it along with me? If you don't, subsequent to your salvation experience, if you've never had that second work of grace, that joyful encounter with the Holy Spirit, I can promise you it changes everything. It's a deal maker. It changes everything. Father, thank you for the wisdom that is from above, that flows from the Spirit not into our heads, but into our hearts and our spirits. And brings the favor of God on us. Shows us how to make decisions and how to live. Come now, Holy Spirit. We want to drink fully of you. We open ourselves completely to you. You said in Scripture, all we have to do is just ask you. And as a natural father would not turn away a child, you will not turn away us when we ask. If we ask bread, you won't give us a stone. If we ask for a fish, you won't give us a scorpion. So we are asking you right now. I am asking you for more of the Holy Spirit. As it's not a single one-time life experience, but it is a daily filling and refilling. And so we come, Lord, to be filled again, filled anew, filled afresh. Come, Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this temple. Turn us into a vessel of honor in the house of the Lord. Make us that revolutionary you've called us to be, that catalyst of change, the living church of Jesus Christ in culture and society. Give us the wisdom that is from above, we pray. In the river of God, in the word of God, and in the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. In Jesus' name we pray.